Peace be with you, church. Good evening to you all. I invite you to open up your Bibles to two passages today. First one in Luke 16, verse 18, and then we will jump over to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 19, beginning in uh, verse, verse 1. So let's read. First in Luke. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's flip over to Matthew 19. We read, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him. And he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we as your church, uh, as your people, have this amazing opportunity to gather today to worship you, Lord, and to hear from you. Father, speak to us. Uh, May your spirit be at work among us. Father, uh, we have many marriages here, many young marriages, many aspiring to to marry. Father, uh, help us, Lord, um, to, to establish our marriages in your word, to hold a high view of marriage that Jesus calls us to hear in our text. Be amongst us, Father. Minister to us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Today we're looking at a very much contested and uh, debated topic among the church. It is a very interesting topic and very important one of marriage and divorce. Last week I said I wish I could skip chapter 16 and jump straight to 17, and I still feel this way today, (laughs) but I have no choice. Um, Just a heads up, the sermon's going to be a little longer um, for kids. If you need to go out, come back in, it's okay. Um, You're not distracting me, it's fine, Um, but just a heads up for you to, yeah. So for the past few weeks, we have been in this very interesting section of Luke. It begins in chapter 15 and ends halfway through chapter 17. And uh, this, this scene, it begins with this, uh, this, this Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, they're eating with tax collectors and sinners. They're having dinner or lunch together. And they're not eating with them, but passing maybe or somehow seeing them are the Pharisees. And they grumbled at Jesus because he is a teacher of the law, a religious man who holds the word of God in high regard. He is eating with the sinners. And so they are offended. They, they, they can't believe that someone who uh, holds the word of God in such high regard would stoop so low and eat with sinners. Um, they were high cultured. They were high religion. They could not believe what Jesus is doing. So they grumbled and they were offended. And what follows for the next two and a half chapters is Jesus' response to 
their grumbling. Last week we looked at a parable uh, that Jesus told his disciples, but it was meant to be overheard by the Pharisees because it's about them. And in this parable, Jesus exposes the Pharisees' love for money. And not only that, even worse, how they obtained this money, how they laid burdens on the people of God, extra laws and regulations that were not found in the word of God, that God never commanded. And the reason why why they would uh, add these extra laws and regulations is so that when people inevitably broke those commandments, broke those regulations, they would have to go to the temple and bring sacrifices of animals, money. Uh, They were basically like the government today. Um, setting up lots of regulations so we would trip over, and then, I mean, there's a, there's a degree of good in that. And so they were enriching themselves, and they made it very convenient for people to bring animal sacrifices. If you guys remember, Jesus had to go into the temple and cleanse it from all of those who were selling animals. It was a business venture for them. The goal was to increase the frequency of sacrifices because they profited off those sacrifices, they capitalized on religion and on guilt. And they did all this while looking holy and righteous before the people. And Jesus exposes this. He tells them, God sees exactly what you are doing. And it's an abomination before him. You are using God's holy and good word and you are perverting it by making it say what it does not say. You are laying heavy burdens on the people, all to profit yourselves. You are grumbling that I eat with tax collectors. Pharisees, you're actually worse than them, because even though everyone hates the tax collector, they're not doing it under pretense. It is what it is. They are agents of Rome taking money from their kindred. Everybody knows that, and people don't like them for it. You, on the other hand, you're supposed to have the best interest of people in mind. The people trust you. They follow you. You are their religious leaders, yet you take advantage of them. You are hypocrites. You are worse than tax collectors. But Jesus is not done with them. Today, he shows them that they are also worse than sinners that are eating with Jesus. Not only did they add to the law, not only did they make it more strict and rigid to trip people up, but in other places, they relaxed the law. They loosened what God has commanded. And in both cases, they do this for their own advantage. As they wield and manipulate the word of God, listen to what Jesus tells them. In verse 17, this is before uh, verse 17, Luke Luke, uh, 16, Jesus tells them, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In other words, no matter what you do with the word of God, Pharisees, no matter how you manipulate it and shape it to suit you, either tighten it up for your benefit or loosen it up for your own benefit. The actual word of God stands. It will never be void. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for even one dot of the law of the word of God to become void. God's law is as eternal as he is. It is not going anywhere. It doesn't matter what culture you live in. It doesn't matter what time period you live in. God's word remains, and it is unchanging, and it will not be canceled or be revoked. The culture can deny it. They can try to destroy it. They can try to make it mean what it does not mean. They can mock it, yet it stands. It remains. It will not be revoked. That's what Jesus is saying. So whatever the Pharisees are doing, all the manipulations with the word for their own benefit— Jesus makes it clear that his word remains, and it will not be 
corrupted. The Pharisees were supposed to know this because they represent the law of God before the people of God, yet they didn't. And today we look at one of those laws, one of those realities that God has established and they have relaxed, and that is marriage. In verse 14, the Pharisees, they ridicule Jesus for this parable that we looked at last week. And in verse 15 through 18, this is all still one conversation, one response that Jesus has for them. And in this response, we read, Jesus tells them, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, why does Jesus bring this into this conversation? Why? And to understand this, we have to take a very deep dive into the world of Jewish people, uh, the Jewish people of this time, and they, how they understood divorce. Um, and this inevitably, this deep dive, it forces us to deal with the question of divorce. So if you're living during that time, you really only have uh, Moses's extra-biblical allowance to divorce. Uh, we see this through Matthew 19. We don't have it anywhere in the Bible that Moses allowed the people to divorce. And the one passage that the Jews used to define under what circumstance they can divorce is a passage found in Deuteronomy 24.1. That's the only passage that they could use to define, try to define under what circumstances they could divorce. So, the allowance for divorce was extra-biblical. It's nowhere found in the Old Testament. It was Moses that gave them that allowance. And the de defining, the, 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 how they defined under what circumstances they could divorce is found in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And it says, when a man takes a wife, it's a strange text just to, just to warn you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, her first husband, who has sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. Long text, but here's what the Pharisees got out of this. They took it to mean that God is allowing them to divorce under certain circumstances. And the circumstance is if they found some indecency in her. But if we carefully look at this passage, we can see that the emphasis, the actual command in, verse, in this text is verse 4. It says, Then her former husband, who has sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. Verses 1 through 3 is not a command. Verses 1 through 3 is God just describing a situation. He's not condoning it. He's not allowing. He's just describing a situation. If you find yourself in this situation, and the command is verse 4, don't do this. For example, if you read further down in the same chapter, Deuteronomy 24, 7, we read, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the command is, if you find someone doing this, they shall die. They deserve the death penalty. Purge the evil. That's the command. But 
If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, that's not a command. That's just a situation that they might find themselves in. Same thing is happening in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Verse 1 through 3 is a situation. Verse 4 is the actual command. But here's what they did. They took it as a description of what and when they are allowed to divorce. And so, coming back to Jesus' times, the Jews, they have this allowance to divorce from Moses. They have this passage in Deuteronomy 24.1 to define under what circumstance one can divorce. And you would think that everything's clear, everything's good, but it's not. During Jesus' time, there is this huge debate. There's huge debate. There's two schools of thought, two different approaches to the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. And the main disagreement between these two schools of thought is, what does indecency mean in verse 1? When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, the question, the main question is, what does indecency mean? Because if we can define what indecency means, then we can draw a clear line when divorce is allowable. That is the argument. That was the great debate of that time. This debate is happening during Jesus' time. And we know that this is happening based on the context of the Gospels and also many of the rabbinic writings that we have, um, the teachings of their time. And so the first school was called the School of Shema. They held a strict interpretation. They said indecency is some sort of uh, unfaithfulness, some marital unfaithfulness, some sexual immorality of some sort that would allow one to divorce in this view. This view was very unpopular during Jesus' time. The second school was the school of Hillel. They were the more progressive ones. These were the Pharisees that came to Jesus. They held to this school of thought. They were the liberal ones, and they argued that indecency simply means indecency. Nothing more to it. Anything you find in her indecent. This is the more popular position. So if your wife embarrassed you in any way, or if she embarrassed herself, you can divorce her. If she violated the vows, if she is childless, if she messed up dinner, it literally says that in their teachings. If she burnt dinner, you can divorce her. Get this. If the husband finds another woman more beautiful than his own wife, then she can be found indecent in his eyes, and he can divorce her. These and other indecencies they thought would allow them to divorce and remarry. And they justified this. They said, this is our righteous duty according to the word of God. We can treat our wives this way. And they were practicing this. They were doing this. And notice it only went one way. One way from from the husbands to the wives. The wives could not do that back to them. And most Pharisees held this view. They practiced this. And they justified this as righteous and allowable before God. And here's Jesus as, as, as the parable, as the Pharisees are judging Jesus that he is eating with the sinners. There were some prostitutes there. There were some very low people there. And as Jesus, as they're judging Jesus that he's spending time with them, Jesus tells them, look at yourselves. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus tells them, you think you are justified before God and man? You think you're in the clear? Look what you're doing. 
Luke 16, 15, we read, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. God knows what is actually happening inside of you. You are lusting for other women. You hate your wives, and you divorce them and marry others, and you make it look so holy and righteous, and you judge sinners? Look at yourselves. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the side, in the sight of God. Jesus shows them that they are worse than those sinners because under the pretense of following God's law, they are doing the same exact thing. They are gratifying and satisfying their lusts and sinful desires rather than the law of God. Jesus tells them you are adulterers. So this is the immediate context of this passage. Uh, This is why Jesus brings up divorce in here to show them that they are no better than the sinners who Jesus is with. Jesus is trying to show them, as we saw last week, that they are also lost and that they need Christ as a Savior as they are trying to hide behind this veil of the law while their hearts are actually corrupt and need saving. And so now we come to Matthew 19. And in Matthew 19, we have another incident, another conversation or debate between Jesus and the Pharisees about divorce. Specifically, this conversation is about the meaning and the application of Deuteronomy 24.1. So uh, in verse 2 of chapter 19, we read that a great crowd is following Jesus. That's the context. By now we know. We know that the Pharisees, they are, uh, they're irritated with Jesus. They're, they're jealous of the crowds that are following Christ. And so they come to him. They come to Jesus, um, and they ask him. They ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Remember this debate happening between the two, two schools of thought? They're trying to suck Jesus in to this debate. Where do you stand on this, Jesus? Is it lawful to divorce a woman, uh, a wife for any cause, for any indecency? Where do you stand on this, Jesus? Notice the fact that they are assuming that this is lawful. They're already, they already think this is, it's, it's lawful to divorce. The question is, is it for any cause or for just some causes. They want to see, would Jesus agree with them that you can divorce for any cause or indecency, or does he agree with the minority, the unpopular view? By the way, they already know Jesus' position. They know it. That's why they're testing him. He's already made it clear on the Sermon on the Mount. He already made it clear what he thinks about divorce. And knowing this and seeing the crowds being jealous that Jesus is, that Jesus is so popular, I think, this is, I'm kind of maybe reading a little bit in the, into the context, but they test him to show the people that he holds a very unpopular position. Therefore, people, why are you following him? as though Jesus cared about the shrinking crowds. And Jesus' answer, church, is what we must embrace as a church, as the people of God. Jesus' response is, is something that we must hold dear to our hearts. Listen to what Jesus says. As they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Again, remember, this is, they're sucking him into Deuteronomy 24.1. He answers them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no, no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus does not play their game. 
instead of being sucked into this Deuteronomy 24 debate, as they're getting all technical and trying to figure out how to legislate what indecencies are, what would allow for divorce, as they're having this fight among themselves, Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis and quotes Genesis 2, 24 and 25. And what Jesus is doing is he is reclaiming the beauty, the glory, and the sanctity of marriage. They want to have a conversation about divorce. Jesus takes them all the way back to Genesis where marriage was instituted and established by God. He tells them, have you not read? Guys, you're missing important factor in this debate. They have such a low view of marriage, like many today. And Jesus asks them, don't you know what marriage is? Let's start there. Let's look at what marriage is before we even talk about divorce. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Do you understand what marriage is? First, Jesus shows them that this is God's design. God created them as male and female. He perfectly designed them for one another. He made men the way they are for a reason. He made women the way they are for a purpose and for a reason. And he has brought them together to create this beautiful thing called marriage. He joined them. And these two have become one flesh, one institution, marriage. Jesus is recovering the sanctity and the glory of marriage. It's not a contract. It's not an agreement for a time for the benefit of two parties. And as soon as one party is not getting what they want, they're free to leave and be free. That's not what it is. Jesus says marriage, two parties becoming one party, one flesh. And this happens because God himself joins them together. He takes it back to Genesis, back to the created order, and he shows them this is not something that we can mess around with and play with. God has instituted marriage. God joins the two into one. We're not free to mess with it. Jesus is recovering the sanctity of marriage, the seriousness and the weightiness of marriage. And so they ask, as they ask Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus' conclusion, his answer to them is concrete. It is decisive. And we should not miss that. Jesus knows about Moses' allowance. Jesus knows that. And yet he still tells them what God has joined together, let not man separate. Do not dissolve it. Do not Mess with it. Do not separate it. God has joined it. It's not for you to mess around with. Jesus makes it clear. This is, just, this is not just a matter between you and your spouse and whatever you guys decide. This is not just a matter between you and your lawyer, you and your counselor. God has joined this marriage. God is intimately involved here. And everyone will give an account. One of the reasons we know that God has instituted marriage to be until death is because nowhere in Scripture has he provided a way out of marriage. As Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in the Old Testament, there is nowhere a provision for a way out of marriage. There isn't. You can't find it. And when man in their sin started to divorce, God has made it clear how he felt about it. Read in Malachi chapter 2, he said, I hate divorce. When man invented this thing, divorce, 
God said, I hate it. The only passage that comes close to any concessions, we already seen that it actually does not, is Deuteronomy 24, 1. Which is being debated here by Jesus and the Pharisees. And already we see what Jesus thinks about it. What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. And this is where we must start. This is where Jesus starts. When, when, when the topic of divorce comes up, this is where Jesus starts. We must start by seeing the glory and the seriousness of marriage. Any conversation about marriage and divorce must start here. When people around us, when the culture around us, they come and they ask us, what are the legit causes or reasons for divorce? Our first instinct must be like Christ's. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus refuses to be sucked into their game. And in verse 7, we read their response to Christ. So they, they tell him, they respond to him. So uh, Jesus, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus appeals to the created order. When he answers and he appeals to the created order, he appeals to the authority of God on the matters of marriage. What do they do? They disregard this, and they go right back to Deuteronomy, and they appeal to the authority of Moses. Jesus, Moses was a man of God. Jesus, Moses is the greatest prophet and he allowed us to divorce. What are you talking about? Notice they say, I said aloud, but he, they didn't say aloud. They said Moses commanded us. It wasn't a command. It was an allowance. They're already twisting Moses' words here. They're telling Jesus we're just doing what Moses said. What Moses commanded us. How do you explain this Jesus? Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And obviously, when Jesus appealed to Genesis 2, he already knew that Moses has allowed them to divorce. He still told them, let not man separate. And so we read his answer to them in verse 8. He says, Moses has allowed you because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus tells them, it was because of your hard hearts that Moses made the concession. You were going to do it anyway. In your sin, in your wickedness, because of your heart, hard hearts towards your spouse, you were going to leave them. You were going to divorce them. And so Moses made a concession. That's why he gave it to you. And Jesus goes right back to Genesis 2 and he says, but in the beginning, it was not so. Jesus keeps on taking it back to Genesis chapter 2. In other words, Jesus says, what God has declared in the beginning still stands. Moses's, Moses's allowance does not override Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 still stands. God's design still stands. Moses' allowance is not God's design. It's not God's will. It is the result of brokenness. It is the result of sin. And when Jesus says that in the beginning it was not so, you could feel the heartbreak over this matter. Jesus knows what was in the beginning. Jesus was right there. We read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Who was this word? 
through whom were all things made, who was right there creating the world and instituting marriage. It was Jesus. He was right there instituting the first marriage. Christ was right there joining both of them together. And he is lamenting at the hardness of man's heart and how lightly they take what he has created. He is lamenting at the hardness of heart and the sin that causes the brokenness in marriage. He says, in the beginning, it was not so. I know I was right there. I created it. And he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And we see that Jesus provides one allowance, one concession, and that is divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality. Two things regarding this allowance. First, we've got to understand the seriousness of sexual immorality. Leviticus 20.10, we also see this throughout De- Deuteronomy. We read, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, the consequences, both the adulterer and the o- adulteress shall surely be put to death. This is how God views sexual immorality. And then what follows is a whole list of various types of sexual immorality, and all of them deserve the death penalty. This is a serious sin that God hates, he despises, and he calls us to take it seriously. And so in that time, if your spouse was caught in this sin and was put to death, you would automatically be free. Your marriage was annulled. It was terminated by their death till death do us part, right? Not the kind of death one hopes for, but it's still death. But it frees them. It frees them to remarry. By the time Jesus comes, this capital punishment is not practiced, and it has not been practiced for a long time. It has been replaced with divorce. The spouse commits adultery. They're not killed. So your marriage is not terminated by death. So there is an option of divorce, and Jesus allows this to stand. But the second thing regarding this allowance, even though in the case of sexual morality, the allowance to divorce is an option, it is not a command. It's an allowance. It's never option A. It is always option B. It's not a command. It's an allowance. And what is the command? The command is repent. Repent from your sin of sexual immorality. The command is forgive. Forgive those who have sinned against you. That is option A. The call is for the sexually immoral to repent and leave behind their sin, to turn away from its evil, horrid, and destructiveness. Repent and never touch it again. It will destroy your marriage. And to the victim, God calls to forgive, a very hard thing to do. And God promises to be with you through this process by his Spirit. And we know that even in the case, even though in the case of adultery, divorce is an option, option B. It's not a command, it's an allowance. We also know Christ's very own position on divorce. He says, in the beginning it was not so. His will for you is to repent. His will for you is to forgive. That's his command to you. That's his option A. That's the thing he wants you to do. 
We know that repentance and, is forgiveness, and repentance and forgiveness is Christ's first option because of his very own position on divorce. But secondly, we know that that is his position because of the way he himself treats sinners. He calls us to this first option because of the gospel. He did not treat us as we deserve, even though, though we have poured against them with other gods and other lovers. He has forgiven us. He has received us. He has washed us pure of our sin. He clothed us in robes of righteousness. And he calls us now to extend this to one another. Yet this in no way diminishes the wickedness of sexual immorality. And so in verse 10, we are given the response of the disciples to Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. We're not given the, uh, how, how, we, we don't know how the Pharisees responded, but we know how the disciples responded. It's kind of funny. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. We know that we understood Jesus correctly. If our response to Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce is the same as the disciples. If your response to Jesus' uh, Jesus's teaching is, man, why would anybody want to get married? <laughs> then you've understood him correctly. The disciples understand the implications of what Jesus is saying. That is why they're saying it is not better to marry. Why take the risk and get married if there is no way to get out of it? I'd rather not get married. What if you get a difficult spouse? What if my marriage does not pin out to be everything I've dreamed of and hoped it would be? What if my husband does not love me as Christ calls him to love me? What if my wife does not respect me as Christ calls her to respect me? What if they do not satisfy me? What if they do not provide for me? What if they hold me back from my full potential? I'm not allowed to exit. The disciples' conclusion was, it's better not to marry. The risk is too high. There's no guarantees. And if we, we, we know we've understood Jesus correctly, if our response is the same, if, we, if it takes us back and we think, wait, this is serious. In today's world, things have not really changed from how they were during Jesus' time. Instead of being preoccupied with the glory and the sanctity of marriage, even the church, instead of being preoccupied with the glory, the beauty, and the sanctity of marriage, and committing to a lifetime of one flesh union, for better or worse, most are preoccupied with, what can I get out of this marriage, and how can I get out of it if I do not get what I want? Just like the Pharisees were playing this technical word game, trying to find and justify themselves in their divorces, they miss the big picture. They miss the heart of God and his intention for marriage. Same thing is happening today. So many Christians are preoccupied with finding and justifying a holy and righteous way out of a marriage because it did not pan out to be the fairy tale they thought it would be. They're not thinking, they're not beholding the beauty and the majesty and the sanctity of marriage and the one who established it and joined. And guess what? Just like the Pharisees used Deuteronomy 24.1 and liberalized the text for themselves and for their own benefit, so today we have, in our New Testament, texts of contention that people go to play the same technical game, one of them being 1 Corinthians 7, where people go and ask, what does this mean? What does abandon mean? What is, if he leaves you, if he what does that mean? 
And some have, hold a very liberal position, and others hold a strict position. But whatever side you're on, strict view or more loose view, in the process we miss the heart of God for marriage. And that is what Jesus is trying to rebuild, point to here in this text. What God has joined together, let no man separate. God is intimately involved in this. God, but my situation is different. Have you seen my spouse? Jesus, but Paul said, in response, Jesus tells us, it is because of the hardness of your heart. But in the beginning, it was not so. Jesus is calling us back to see the glory and beauty and the sanctity of marriage the way he created it to be from day one. When things get hard, when things get hard in our marriages, and if thoughts of divorce are creeping in, Here's what scripture does. Here's what Jesus does. He gives us all the reasons to stay in and fight for our marriage. We must not come to the Bible to find a way out, but a way in. If you're going to scriptures to find a way out, you are misusing and abusing the word of God. To come to scripture to find a way out, is to be like the Pharisees. Jesus gives us all the reasons to stay in and fight for our marriages. We must feel the seriousness of marriage and God's eternal disapproval and God's eternal hatred of divorce. No matter what our culture and other Christians tell us. Going back to Jesus' words, He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female and said, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Church, divorce is the wrecking and the ruining of this one flesh union. But here's what we must understand. Divorce is never the start of this ruin. But it is the fruit, it is the end of the ruin and the erosion that has been already taking place long before divorce. Divorce is never the start of ruin. It is the fruit of the end of the ruin, that erosion that has already been taking place. Divorce is the fruit of a hardened heart, a hardening heart. It is fruit of underlying habitual sin that has been taking place behind the scenes. Church, sin is the enemy of our marriages. Unforgiven, unrepentant sin is the enemy of our marriages. And we can judge, we can judge uh, those who have been divorced, yet we ourselves are often practicing sins that are slowly or quickly destroying and eroding our very own marriages. God hates divorce. And God hates the sin in your marriage that destroys the union and the oneness between you and your spouse that you are practicing right now. God hates it just as much as he hates divorce. What are these sins? You may not have committed adultery outright, but are you practicing other forms of sexual immorality? Pornography, it erodes the oneness between you and your wife. Lust, thoughts of being married to someone else. This is all sexual immorality, and if you are doing these things, you are actively working against your marriage, you are destroying, you are eroding the one flesh union. Men, we typically sin loudly, we sin boldly, and often these bold sins, they erode our marriages. Are you harsh with your wives? Are you not living in an understanding way with them? 
Do you lash out in anger? Have you abandoned certain duties as a husband and a father? Is there sexual sin in your life? Do you live foolishly as though no one else depends on you and you are forsaking your family and your spouse? Maybe even through substance abuse or foolish use of money. God, are are you covering and justifying your sin? God hates these sins just as much as he hates divorce because they destroy the one flesh union that God has made between you and your spouse. Women, ladies, you're not off the hook. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but the folly, or the foolish one, with her own hands tears it down. The foolish woman, with her own hands, tears down her house. It's not speaking of your physical wood wood or stone home. It's speaking about your marriage. It's speaking about your family, the oneness and the unity that should exist within your home. The wise woman, she builds it. She establishes this in her home. The foolish one tears it down with her very own hands. Ladies, you have a huge role to play in how your home is built and how your family is thriving. Huge role. Who is this foolish woman? How does she tear down the house? Proverbs continues and and tells us that she's a clamorous woman. She's a quarrelsome and fretful woman, irritable and frustrated. She is a contentious woman. She is manipulative. The woman that destroys her own home is a woman that lusts after other men. I wish my husband was like that. God hates these sins just as much as he hates divorce because they destroy the one flesh union that God has made. In church, husbands, wives, singles, children, the reality is that all of us are sinners. All of us have areas in our lives and aspects of our marriages that are still unredeemed and corrupt, and we, all of us here, bring so much sin into our marriages. What is our hope? Are we all doomed? Are we just a ticking time bomb? Our hope is Christ. He has not abandoned us. He has loved us while we were his enemies, while we were whoring after other gods against him. He laid down his life for us. He has washed us. He has redeemed us from our sin. He has made us his most precious and beloved. He clothed us in clothes of righteousness and glory. And he made us children of the king so that we may rule and reign with him forever. That is what Christ has done for us. We all deserve death, the death penalty. We all deserved a divorce. Yet that is not what he has done for us. He has not treated us as we have deserved. Church, in the midst of our own sin, in our families, between all of our relationships, between our, in, our, in our marriages, the gospel is our only hope. Christ is our only hope. Sin will be with us till death do us part. But that sin has power only when repentance and forgiveness has ceased to exist in a marriage. Listen to this. Sin will be with us till death do us part. But sin has power only when repentance and forgiveness has ceased in a marriage. When the gospel starts, stops working among us, we are hopeless. We are doomed. Our hope is only in Christ and in the work of the gospel among us. Divorce happens when repentance and forgiveness has ceased in marriage. Christ did not treat us as we deserved, and we must not treat each other as we 
deserve. The gospel is the only reason why we must not divorce, but continually repent and forgive. Church, our marriages must be signs that point to Christ and his eternal covenant with his bride. His covenant is eternal with us. He will not forsake us. Even in the midst of our sin, he will not forsake us. And our marriages are supposed to point to the reality. One author said, the deepest biblical reason that divorce among Christians is abhorrent is that it is that it communicates to the world that Jesus is open to divorcing his bride. And he's not. He has made an eternal covenant with her, and he's not abandoning her. He is continually washing her and restoring her, sanctifying her, and redeeming her. As we close, some of you... Obviously, we, we have people here and those who are listening who are divorced for various reasons. Maybe you're wondering, what if I divorced wrongly? I have acted foolishly and have contributed to the destruction of my marriage. I was selfish and it ended up in divorce. What can I do now? What must I do? Is there hope for me? And the answer is yes. There is hope for you. Divorce is evil, but it is not the unpardonable sin. God calls you to not justify it. God calls you to admit your areas of sin wherever you uh, contributed and what it, w- with your sin. God calls you to repent from that. God calls you to not hold any bitterness against your previous spouse. God calls you to make peace in your heart with them, to forgive them, and to lament the brokenness of your marriage. Do not justify it. Do not justify your sin. Lament over it and confess whatever you have contributed to your marriage, being divorced. And then be forgiven. Be free from bitterness. You can look back at that time with regret, but not with condemnation or guilt. Because God has forgiven you. The answer is always repentance. When the word of God is being preached, when we see God's standard of holiness, that he calls us to, if we have screwed up, and we all have, the answer is not rejection. The answer is not you're out. The answer is repentance. And you Cut yourself out by not repenting. You cut yourself from the grace of God. God's grace flows to those who not justify their sin, but who repent of it. Church, we must, uh, and lastly, lastly, if you are continually, you are continually right now sinning or, 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 or sinning in a way that is eroding your marriage, God is, Christ is calling you to repentance today as well. He's calling you to stop. I, I don't want to get another tangent. God is calling us to see the destructive power of our sin, especially our unrepentant sin. God is calling us to repent of it. We're sinning against our spouse and we're sinning against the God who has joined us together. So church, we must recover the beauty, the glory, and the sanctity of marriage, and we must fight against the sin that threatens to destroy and to erode our one flesh union with our spouse. And we fight. Our weapons of choice are the gospel of Jesus Christ by repenting and forgiving each other constantly and trusting in the powerful work of Christ by his spirit within us, who sanctifies us. That is why our marriages have so much hope. It is because of the gospel. That is why we have so much to look forward to, and that is why we must commit to the beautiful task of cultivating our marriages and our families. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.
we thank you for Christ. We thank you that, Father, you did not leave us in our sin. Lord, you would have been just to punish us and to treat us as we deserve, yet you did not. You had mercy on us. While we were your enemies, you have made us your friends. You have laid down your life, and we thank you for that, Father. We thank you for Christ. And Lord, I just pray that we would be overwhelmed with the beauty of the gospel, that we would, Lord, just be overwhelmed realizing that, Father, we do not deserve this. We do not deserve such grace and mercy. And may that overflow, the thanksgiving of our soul, may that overflow into our marriages, into our families, Father. May we be quick to forgive. May we be quick to repent. Father, be at work in our hearts. May there not be any root of bitterness in anyone here. May there not be any hidden sin that would cause destruction in their lives and in their marriages. Father, protect us from the evil one. Protect the marriages of this church and of your people, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.